I feel very uh, privileged, honored to be able to come back up here. It's been a, it's, it almost feels like it's been an exact year since I've been up here last. It was last August. I think it was the second week in August. And in that time, uh, most of you that know me know that a lot has happened and changed in that year. Uh, a lot of struggles, trials that have come my way that the Lord has sent and really helped use uh, use to help me to lean on him more. If you think back to where you were a year ago from now, uh, what has changed? We all go through similar trials and experiences, things that happen, and we are very different people in one way or another than we were a year ago. Part of a Christian walk is growth. Part of how we uh, our relationship with the Lord is to grow in Him. So if we are continuing our relationship with Him, then we should see growth over time. So in the past year, and you're looking back at how you were a year ago, what all has transpired? Each of us have trials, each of us have experiences that have happened, and what has resulted out of that? Bitterness, joy, uh, relaxation, or a lot of stress and anxiety. I'm not here to condemn anyone nor make you feel bad like if it's the negative side because I myself have not responded perfectly to each of my situations the past year. Uh, But the Lord has used them to still grow me regardless of my reaction. But have you ever felt so beaten down by your trials in life that you feel like you're letting God down? Have you ever felt like that he is looking at you disappointed because you aren't doing things exactly how you know they should be carried out, or we're not responding with the right attitude or heart. And you feel you recognize this, and you feel like you're bringing even further disappointment to God in that way. And this, again, brings you further anxiety in kind of this ongoing uh, circle. You trust God. You want to trust him more. However, you have feelings of inadequacy in your pursuit of him and pursuing your relationship with him. But you aren't alone. Our scripture has multiple accounts of similar people that were in similar situations. Each of us go, every human being throughout history has gone through some sort of trial or obstacle. And each person in this room, I'm sure, uh, can relate to you in some way. We're going to see similar people in a similar circumstance in Exodus 32 tonight. Now, before you turn there, or if you want to go ahead and turn there while I talk, that's fine too. But let's set the scene with everyone closing their eyes. Uh, I'm going to close mine too. I'm not going to go around the room and be weird, don't worry. But just picture with me you standing in a hot desert. Physically, you have sweat beating down your person uh, because the heat is getting to you. And obviously, you're around a bunch of other people, and the smell of them is kind of getting to you. Uh, It's a little disconcerting. You taste the sand in your mouth. You kind of wipe any grit that might get into your eyes. You hear the people that are around you grumbling. You hear them starting to complain and get negative. And that, of course, brings you down. Uh, Emotionally, you're getting annoyed because of the people that are around you. And emotionally, uh, you're just feeling weak. You're feeling daunted. You're feeling like, I don't know how to exactly handle this. I don't know how to respond to this. You're frustrated because you don't like to be kept waiting. You don't know what's going on. You're confused because... What is Moses doing on the mountain? You're anxious and you're stir-crazy as your mind wanders, and you wonder exactly when is this all going to end. The tension is in the air, 
and it's almost as dry as the heat that surrounds you. But at least it can't get worse, right? You can go ahead and open your eyes. We'll pause the narrative for now, and now you can turn to Exodus 32. We are all familiar with the story of the golden calf. Oftentimes, you know, if you've gone through a Sunday school, it's one that's uh, gone over sometimes, and we've heard a sermon here or there about it. Moses was on the mountain for almost about a month and a half, and the people were growing restless over time. Uh, Aaron acts like a coward. They build a golden statue to worship it after they'd agreed to obey God before Moses went back up on that mountain. We have many characters in the story, and each character plays a specific role to the narrative. These characters all centralize around a common goal, in some way, shape, or form, knowing God. The people wanted to know this God that rescued them out of Egypt. Moses wanted nothing more than to bring God closer to the people and develop or have them develop a relationship with him. And God, of course, is doing everything that he can to get closer to the people to the point of physically manifesting himself there so that way they can come to know him and have a relationship with him. God labored and manifested his presence on earth to make himself known. And who is between all of this? Moses, the imperfect intercessor. So let's pick the narrative up. Chapter 24 gives the broader background, uh, if you want to turn a few chapters back, where the Lord confirms his covenant with the people, and they declare, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. If you know the story of the golden calf, you're cringing reading this because obviously they don't hold this promise. Moses begins his trek up on the mountain, and he comforts the people, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you Aaron and her to maintain the fort, make sure everything is going as it is. So the people aren't left leaderless. Uh, now, this is not, and then as Moses is going to the mountain, God manifests himself on the mountain in like a great cloud. We hear cloud, and we think of a fluffy white cloud that we sit outside and we look and see like an ice cream cone or a dog or something like that. But no, what is going on here is God manifests himself as a big storm cloud. It's lightning and thunder and all-consuming around the mountain. It's compared to an all-consuming fire. Not that it was literally fire, but rather it is so ferocious and so mighty and powerful that it resembles a fire is eating up the mountain. Most of us here haven't seen a big fire cloud in our lives, but you can think of it like something that you'd see on a movie like Jurassic Park. God is going out of his way to manifest and show himself to the people, not only his glory and his might, but his power. So our passage uh, fast-forwards roughly a month and a half later, and the people are getting fidgety. I mean, this comes completely unexpected and without precedent. That is, if you forget about in Exodus 5, when the people are complaining that things are getting harder in Egypt, and God said he's going to get us out, but there's no way he's going to get us out. Or then Exodus 14, right before Moses parts the Red Sea, they accuse God, okay, you got us out of Egypt, but you only brought us out of Egypt in order to kill us. Or then, okay, Exodus 15, God, you didn't try to kill us, but you got us out, but you're not doing anything to provide for us. Where's our water? Exodus 16, they got water, but they didn't have food. And they're like, okay, God, you're not providing all of our needs. And then immediately in Exodus 17, they're thirsty again, and there's no water, and they forget that God provided for them before. So we see throughout the narrative uh, in Exodus that these weren't exactly a uh, godly people. 
that, that God declared for his own people. Now, I'm not up here to throw stones at the Israelites, nor for us to get on them, because we've possibly each heard a sermon before about don't get too down on the Israelites, because we ourselves are like the Israelites. However, let's imagine the scenario not to throw rocks, but rather better understand what is happening. Moses is up on this mountain getting perfect instruction from the perfect and holy God on how to honor and please him, get perfect knowledge and all that they need to know, and the people start, are still uncomfortable with everything. Do we just gloss over how crucial the job between Moses and God is? Well, the people did. This would be kind of like men getting the blueprint on how to understand women. Uh, this doesn't mean to be irreverent, because obviously this is on a much smaller scale, but follow along with the analogy for a minute, and most men will admit that there's times we don't totally understand what goes through a lady's mind. What I wouldn't give personally to sit down with the perfect woman and figure out everything you know, that I'm doing wrong, and so that way I can do better to treat Megan better. Uh, it's, and that's kind of similar to what's going on with Moses here. He's going to the perfect being of the universe and getting perfect instruction from him on how these people can better serve him. Moses was providing the blueprints to these people so that way they could not only serve him but have a relationship with the God that rescued them out of Egypt. So as Moses is gleaning information from God, the people grow restless and they go to Aaron demanding him to make a God suitable for them. Look at verse 1. Up, make us gods which shall go before us. So here, God has not met their expectations, so they're going to go ahead and take matters into their own hands and make something that is going to better serve them. People go on to claim, we don't, the people go on to claim in the narrative, we don't know what's come of Moses, so let's go ahead and hit the panic button and handle it ourselves. You're reading this and thinking, all right, Aaron's got this, Moses left him in charge, surely he's going to make sure he sets these people straight. And then Aaron tells them to take off their gold jewelry which they got from Egypt, ironically, and he himself makes them an idol to worship. But it gets even worse. Look at verse 4 with me. They go and they fashion this idol, and then they attribute to this idol, this golden calf, as it being responsible for what brought them out of Egypt. They not only complain earlier about leaving the comfy Egypt that they were in, only to die in the wilderness, completely disregarding what God did for them, But now they suddenly remember how bad it was in Egypt, and they're saying it's because of the golden calf they got out of Egypt. You can't really make this stuff up. Now, Aaron is, you think, as you're reading this, Aaron's going to step in and say, guys, you know, we're making a big mistake. Things are going wrong. Uh, This is not right. We need to return to the Lord that we promised we would obey. Uh, This is the same Aaron that witnessed the plagues in Egypt, and this is all going on, mind you, while this big fire cloud is in the distance behind them. They see all of this, yet they decide to still chase after this golden calf, made of possessions from the people that enslaved them. But unfortunately, Aaron neglects his duty. He goes on and he constructs an altar in front of this golden calf and says, tomorrow we will feast for the Lord. Kind of trying to have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. Like, okay, we're going to worship this idol today, and then tomorrow, you know, we'll also worship Yahweh. However, God doesn't leave room for an idol and himself. You choose one or the other. So while all this is happening with this great cloud of lightning encompassing the mountain, God knows everything that is going down. God is watching all of it. He's watching the glory that he deserves being attributed to this cow statue. 
And the next day, as God watches on, the people got up early in the morning and they offered sacrifices to this golden calf. And you want to know when you've, you've did it, when you've done it, when you've messed up, when the long-suffering and patient God of the universe has had enough. Verse 7, the Lord interrupts his fellowship with Moses and he commands Moses to leave. God completely disassociates himself from the people and he tells Moses to return to Moses' people. No longer his people, but Moses' people. God tells Moses, your people have corrupted themselves and they've quickly threw away everything I not only commanded them, but that they committed to. They made an idol, they sacrificed and they worshipped it and did the unthinkable of attributing my glory to it. I have been watching what they've been doing and I'm done. And this is where it gets even more heart-wrenching. Verse 10, God tells Moses to leave him alone, further emphasizing the disconnection. I am furious with this people. I'm not surprised with what they've done, but it still hurts. He tells Moses that he will still use Moses. Moses is going to, I'll still make you a great nation, Moses, but I'm going to pour out my wrath and consume this people. But Moses hears all this and he implores, he begs, he pleads God. Think twice. He beseeches him and appeals to the Lord's mercy. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He advocates for them. And notice in verse 11, that this advocacy never once has anything to do with any potential merit the people may possess. But no, rather what he appeals to is the Lord's goodness. It is the Lord's mercy, the Lord's reputation, and his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It has nothing to do with the people. Notice, it has nothing even to do with Moses himself, but rather he appeals to who the Lord is in his sparing of the people. It is out of the Lord's own graciousness that he could even extend grace. Even though the people deserve to be cut off and destroyed, he grants them the riches of his unmerited favor. Now, this narrative has showed us several characters. We had the hopeless sinners, uh, the children of Israel that could not see past their own selfishness, and a loving and merciful God that wants the people to see and enjoy his glory, yet they completely turn their back on him. And Moses, the intercessor, pleading on behalf of the sinful people. Often in the Old Testament narrative, we see several characters that imperfectly represent uh, or portray a role or characteristic of Christ. We normally categorize these into uh, prophet, priest, and king. We had imperfect prophets that presented the word of God to the people, but they 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 weren't exactly fulfilling the role perfectly in how they should. We had imperfect kings that couldn't rule the people as they needed and imperfect priests that could not, could not even begin to atone for the sins of the people. I kind of like to think of these roles, these characters in the Old Testament, they're types of Christ. If I want to think about them in a way to get an idea, I picture them like waffle makers. These people are, have the image of what is to be or what needs to be, but they don't have the whole thing. Yeah, you can have a waffle maker, but if you don't have the waffle, you're not going to get much out of it. However, Christ comes along and he completely fills the image of each of these roles and completely satisfies them perfectly in every way. He acts as our perfect prophet, delivering the true word of God. He acts as the perfect king, ruling us how we need, and the perfect priest, perfectly atoning for our sins. In a likewise manner, uh, Moses acted as an imperfect intercessor in this case. 
Now, it's not knocking Moses because I'm sure he did a much better job than I could have. However, he still was, he was uh, limited by his own humanity. He foreshadowed Christ and the work Christ does as our intercessor. We've exemplified in Exodus 17 where the people complained for the 9,000th time and they were whining about needing water to drink and Moses loses his patience and he chastises the people. The people complain about Moses, Moses complains about the people, and Moses is kind of at his wit's end. Uh, The people go on to grumble like little children, and Moses goes to the Lord, and he says, what am I supposed to do? What's going on? I, I don't want anything more to do with these people. Moses acted and served as an imperfect intercessor for an imperfect people. But unfortunately, this imperfect people needed a perfect intercessor. They royally messed up in Exodus 32, and we all recognize that. They not only disobeyed, but they intentionally turned their back and betrayed God. However, we do see a beautiful picture of how Christ intercedes for us in what Moses did and what Christ continues to do in in our everyday Christian walk. So to make sure we're on the same page, let's go ahead and define our terms and capture what Christ is really doing for us. Most of you know that I have Lyme disease. Uh, Because of the Lyme disease, I'm not always able to uphold the standards and everything that I need to do at Bob Jones University as a student. Uh, I try to be a good student. However, I cannot perfectly fulfill the role. One of my teachers at Bob Jones, Dr. McGonigal, is a good teacher, and his goal is for his students to grow through his classes. Due to my limitations caused by my Lyme disease, I am not able to fulfill the uh, standards that he uh, needs from his students. Dr. McGonagall would like to extend me favor and grace and kind of give me special treatment, I'm sure. However, he can't due to being, that would cause unfairness to the other students, and then he would no longer be good, and he'd no longer be a good teacher. Mrs. Streeter at Bob Jones acts as an academic advocate, and what she did is she put together a 504 plan that explains the limits of my condition and, in a sense, for lack of better words, excuses it. It gives Dr. McGonagall the ability to look past my inadequacies and give me special merit and favor. So now, because of the work of Mrs. Streeter acting as my intercessor per se, uh, Dr. McGonagall is able to meet me where I'm at, at my limitations, excuse those limitations, and help me along so that way I can do better in my classes. Um, and this is how intercession works, and, and very similar to how Christ acts on our behalf in the presence of God. Because of the work of Christ, God is able to look past our inadequacies. He's able to look past our sin and look at the work of Christ by Christ pointing to it. And Jesus says, don't, don't look at what they've done. Look at what I did. And Christ intercedes for us so that way the burden is off our back. We cannot approach God like Christ can. So Christ intercedes for us so that we may know God. And that way we can receive his favor, so that way God can still be good and God can still be God. So he is our perfect intercessor. The New Testament illustrates Christ's perfect uh, intercession in Romans 8.34, presenting the picture of Christ standing at the throne of God, constantly filling his ear post-resurrection at a royal position, and he's interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 tells us he lives to intercede for us, constantly beseeching the Father in every moment, saving everyone that draws close to him. Before he took the cross for our sin, his two concerns were glorifying the Father and interceding on our behalf. You can read John 17, his high priestly prayer of intercession for us. 
Uh, the Spirit even works to intercede for us on our behalf, and we can't think of what to say when we pray. And we think of when Christ was on the cross with the thief, and he, inter- uh, and he interceded on behalf. Uh, not, I'm sorry, not with the thief. When Christ was on the cross and, the pe- and he prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's how he was interceding for the people at the time. See, what intercession does is it takes what we are unable to do and too weak to do and accomplishes it, and he accomplishes it for us, putting the burden on Christ's back, uh, looking past our inadequacies. So when Moses interceded for the people, the people were too weak to plead on their own for their own case because they had no case. There's nothing that they could approach the Father and say, Lord, please look past our sin. Why? We don't have a reason. But Moses was able to intercede because he knew the Lord's goodness. He had a relationship with the Lord, and he was able to point to the Lord's goodness. Christ even more perfectly intercedes for us because Christ is able to point to his own work and have the Father look on him instead of us. Christ is the better and more complete intercessor because Christ never grows frustrated with you. He does not listen to your grumbling and uh, just want to plug his ears and avoid you. He doesn't appear before the Father in his intercession and complain about you and say, wow, I'm really getting sick of Tyler and all he's doing to mess up. No, rather he's pointing to the Father to his work. Because when Christ appears to the Father, it's no longer about Tyler. It's about Jesus. And that's what the Father looks at. So we may no longer bear the wrath of God, and now we can finally partake in the favor of God. When Jesus saved us at salvation, he didn't save us and then leave us the rest to figure out ourselves, but rather he continuously intercedes for us so that way we can have a relationship with God, just as Moses interceded for the people so that they could have a relationship with God. Christ not only cleared our accounts, but he gave us his merit and his favor into our accounts so that way we can have that relationship with the Lord. Have you ever wondered why God keeps putting up with you? Me, personally, I have quite a few times. I don't know if any of you have. But it's gone through my mind like, Lord, I keep messing up. Why do you continue to just put up with me? If you want to talk about having a hyperactive mind, I would be the uh, case study for that. Uh, Anxiety and stress are my main flaws, and uh, I really struggle with that. It got to the point where I would constantly burden myself with what people think or would say, and I would pray to God after like a conversation or when I would joke with someone or send someone a text, and I would pray, uh, dear Lord, please make it where what I said didn't do anything to offend that person. And I realized soon enough that that wasn't good enough because I needed to do more. I was like finally evolved and snowballed into this huge, disgusting prayer of, dear Lord, please make it where what I said hasn't, isn't, nor will do anything to upset anyone in any way ever, please. And eventually, you know, that didn't go over too well because I was stressed out all the time. Uh, We can talk about poor prayer theology in another sermon. But I tell you, this anxiety completely took over me. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it because anxiety is a sin. Um, It shows a complete lack of trust in God and what he's done for us. I kept trying to escape it, I admit, but I couldn't at the time uh, because I wasn't relying enough on Christ. And in the process, it was this snowball, this uh, wheel effect, this chain reaction that kept going on and happening where I kept disappointing God, which would stress me out, which I knew was a sin, so I would stress out about me letting down God again, and I would feel disappointed. Um, But why did God keep putting up with me? 
As crazy as that sounds, why did he not just grumble and turn his back and say, he was done with me? And it's because Christ interceded for me. He continues to intercede for me, and he intercedes for you. If you're a new creature in Christ, he looks to intercede for you and appeal to the Father on your behalf. He not only died for you, but he intercedes so that way we can have favor and consistently enjoy God. So that way we can bring glory to God. We are going to stumble in our Christian walk. Christ didn't save us and expect us to be perfect the rest of our life. He just wants us to chase after him. And the only way we can do that is by leaning on him and appealing to his intercession. We're going to do things that offend the perfect and holy God. But Christ will point God to his work on the cross when we come to him. And he will never begrudge it. He will do it perfectly because he is our perfect intercessor. Christ's intercession acts as a key to the change that we had in wrath to the change that we put on ourselves when we stress out over our own sin. There is no more burden, no more weight, because Christ completed the work. What this means, the crux of everything and the full force of what we need to understand is Christ intercedes for us so that way we may know God. When we go before God now, we are not only in the presence of a king, but we are also in the presence of our Father. So what this means is that you can go to God and stop worrying about your sin. That doesn't mean you can go live liberally and lavishly and uh, indulge in sin. We're still to chase after God. However, when we mess up, we can expect Christ to be right there to pick us back up. We cannot enjoy a relationship with God when our anxiety clouds our view of God. He continually intercedes for us so that way we may maintain and have this relationship with God. So relax and actually enjoy him. With all of this to say, we do live in a fast-paced society. There are a lot of stresses, a lot of anxieties, a lot of new things that come along. There will always be something new. There's always going to be something that we are going to grow anxious over. This is heightened even more when we stress over our Christian walk and we work to try to hold it together ourselves. However, Christ is there. He intercedes for you on your behalf so you don't have to stress. So that way you can lean on him and be able to properly glorify him. He works tirelessly before the Father, filling God's ear so we can enjoy a relationship with the Father. There is nothing to stress over. No matter how bad you are or what you may have done, God, Jesus Christ, intercedes for you. This is not to say relax in the sense to sit around and do nothing or just show up at church and you're good or, again, indulge in sin, but rather it's relax and enjoy the God that we have been gifted, the God that wants to know you, the God that Jesus died in order for us to know. So we need to seek his face. We need to get to know him and put away all our anxieties, our stresses, our sins and stumbles that plague us on our Christian walk. We need to forsake our sin And forsake it more than just stop doing it, but forsake it in the manner of not feeling guilt anymore, because Christ forgave it. If Christ forgave your sin, then why can't we? We need to put it behind us and look forward to God. We are going to fall, and we're going to be unable to measure up, but Christ is able to look past that by pointing to his work on the cross. Christ intercedes for you so that you may know God. So relax and enjoy him. Christ did all the work, so look to him as your perfect intercessor. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can call you Father. We thank you for that you love us, you care for us, and that we have a perfect intercessor in Jesus Christ, that because of his salvation, we are able to look to him and no longer stress over our sin, but rather hand our sin over to you and have to no longer worry about it or feel guilt over it. Lord, please help us to rely on you, to lean on you, and to enjoy you, so that way we can better bring you glory. Uh, if there's anyone in this room that does not know Christ, help them, bring them to you. Help their hearts to open and see you so that way they can enjoy this perfect intercession. They can enjoy this perfect relationship with you. Lord, we love you. Please help us to love you more. It's through your son's name.